Hello and welcome to the End of the World podcast from the European Council on Foreign Relations. I'm Anthony Dworkin, standing in for the regular host Mark Leonard. And this is the series of podcasts where we're asking about the state of the liberal international order as it's existed in the years since World War II. Is it breaking down, being attacked, coming apart, or perhaps merely changing into something new and different? And in today's episode, we're looking at one of the real strains on the international system in recent years, the movement of people across borders in the form of migration and refugees. And to discuss this, I'm joined by Kelly Greenhill, Associate Professor at Tufts and Research Fellow at the Kennedy School at Harvard, and author, among other books, of Weapons of Mass Migration, Forced Displacement, Coercion, and Foreign Policy. So, Kelly, to start with, um, those of us in Europe are well aware that migration has become one of the real flashpoints of um, disruption in the international system. But more broadly, how, how significant do you think migration and the growth in refugees is as a factor in the kind of present state of, of the international order? I think one can't uh, underestimate the influence that uh, migration, unregulated migration and the current refugee crisis um, UNHCR it can't it can't underestimate the influence that migration refugees have had on the state of affairs in the liberal world order. According to UNHCR, there are more people on the move today than there have been uh, since the end of World War II. So, in excess of 60 million people are living um, away from their uh, their place of residence, and some of these people have. Um, moved seeking better economic opportunities, but many have been uprooted because of violence and persecution. And um, even though a relatively modest share of uh, this great mass of people who are on the move have ended up in Western liberal democracies as a political issue, uh, migration refugees is huge. There's no other other way to put it. Um, in some sense, the numbers don't capture the significance of um, the issue of migration and refugees for shifts in the political landscape and uh, the influence that the issue has played um, as um, as a as an election tool and um, as a political cudgel of some uh, non-traditional and traditional parties against their more traditional counterparts. Right. I mean, I guess, you know, when people talk about globalization and uh, the fact that globalization has been such a strong trend in the last, um, you know, couple of decades, they tend to think of the movement of capital or, um, you know, goods, trade, money, those kinds of things. But I guess, of course, the movement of people is also part of globalization. Indeed, and of course some of the other developments in globalization have facilitated the movement of people, so one can't underestimate the influence of uh, changes in transportation, uh, and of course the internet and technology which allows people in far-flung parts of the world to learn in real time about which are the best routes to use to try to move from place to place, uh, where they're likely to encounter impediments uh, to connect people smugglers with those who wish to be moved. Uh, it also facilitates 
uh, well, I should say, advances in technology and other aspects of globalization have facilitated the illicit movement and involuntary movement of peoples as well. So globalization is, uh, goes, I guess, hand in glove, um, or, or vice versa. Uh, movement of, of people is a fundamental part of globalization, and it's hard to, in some sense, disaggregate. Um, you know, it's, it's its own issue, and it's also a subset of the issues we're contending with on other fronts. So if I understand you, effectively you're saying that there, one can point to two broad causes. Um, number one, that it's easier to move and that people know more about the options that are available. And number two, I guess there are more um, factors pushing people out of their countries um, to do with uh, you know, the number of conflicts and failing states in the world today. Both of those things are true, and there are also just more people in the world uh, than, than ever before. And um, one also can't underestimate the influence of inequality and growing inequality in both its role in exacerbating or sort of laying bare fundamental contradictions of capitalism and um, laying bare the differences between the haves and the have-nots, also making it possible for people to believe uh, that they might have better futures if they move. Um, we thought for a period of time after the Cold War ended that uh, there would be fewer conflicts, and for a time there was, but there's now also been an uptick in conflicts, particularly internal, but not simply internal conflicts, and many people are on the move, therefore, as well. So um, trends, should we say, for all of the positive trends, aggregate poverty is down, there are more opportunities for many people, there is also um, a, a growth in chaos, um, unrest, and violence throughout the world, and all of these factors, both the push factors and the pull factors, lead to more people being on the move. And from what you're saying, it seems like this is probably not just a kind of brief temporary blip, um, but perhaps more of a, simply a, a long-term trend that's unlikely to um, decline significantly anytime soon. Uh, no, I think that that's true, and it, it didn't, I think many people started paying attention to mass migration in in recent years, uh, no small part because of the visibility of the European uh, migration crisis caused in no small part by the unrest associated with the Syrian civil war, but this is, as you suggest, not a new problem by any stretch of, or new issue, I should say, uh, by any stretch of the imagination. And while numbers of those involuntarily displaced are very, very high by historical standards, this isn't even the first time we've seen a peak um, in ebbs and flows over time. And um, I think, I, I could be wrong, but I think um, the lowest number of uh, refugees in a single year um, in the post-Cold War period was, I think, uh, around 10 or 12 million. So even that's a very sizable number. We're significantly higher than that right now, obviously, but um, uh, but this is neither a new problem nor one, as you say, that is likely to go away anytime soon. So I guess this is kind of a broad question, but um, you know, we have this international system that, um, you know, with some ups and downs, we think has more or less kept a, you know, a, a reasonable degree of order internationally, um, certainly until, until recent years. 
And it's kind of, we also like to think that it's a liberal order that incorporates, you know, not only respect for state sovereignty, but some sort of liberal ideals uh, to do with human rights and treating people in a kind of, you know, with some degree of respect or dignity. How, how far do you think that system is, is holding up in the face of this wave of uh, refugees and uh, migration that we're talking about? Well, the liberal world order um, is, is certainly embattled, and many of the values that many of us hold dear are certainly under threat. And outside actors, outside political actors and inside political actors recognize this well. You know, these are complicated issues, and there are many, many, many good reasons for us to hold fast to liberal ideas and liberal values, but there are also social, economic, and political costs associated with assimilating people from the outside, and there are actors, as I say, both inside and outside who are uh, have been and will continue to be, I predict, for some time, uh, happy to exploit uh, the fact that you know, this is a complicated issue, and just as there are winners and losers more broadly uh, in the context of the liberal world order, there are winners and losers in the context of uh, migration and, and immigration, and um, this is a flashpoint. It's a very powerful and potent political tool. The, you know, the uh, uh, should we say, exacerbation or the um, heightening or, or stro stoking fears and stoking um, sort of highlighting differences between us versus them and more, more tribalism, the tighter definitions of us versus them. And the whole, the whole premise, one of the premises that undergirds the, the liberal international order and liberal international system is that there are universal um, ideas and values that, to which we hold dear. But um, if people start parsing uh, and essentially saying, you know, these, these values should only apply to a certain subset of people, then uh, every, 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 there's every reason to believe that the liberal world order um, and democracy and uh, all that good stuff that goes along with it um, will continue to be under siege. Right. I mean, I guess in terms of the, the way that this, um, that the movement of people is kind of regulated at the moment, we have this distinction between, on the one hand, refugees, where under international law there is some obligation to um, provide asylum uh, for people who are, you know, uh, escaping a serious threat. Um, and then, on the other hand, uh, migrants who perhaps are simply seeking a better life. But um, do you think that's a, a distinction that, um, that works and that has value as a way of um, you know, thinking about how to regulate these questions? It's a fine idea in principle, but here too the world is a complex place and trying to disentangle uh, who is a migrant and who is a refugee, um, is, it, it's more facile in theory than it sometimes is in practice, particularly when there are very large numbers of people crossing borders. Um, within Europe, there are also obligations that uh, individual nation states you know, have as members of the larger European Union, but uh, what are supposed to be 
so we say shared club obligations turn out to fall disproportionately on a certain subset of the members of the club. And so here too, you know, there's the fundamental contradiction or say competition between what might be viewed as good for one's own nation state versus what is good for the larger entity. I would also add that um, to complicate the picture still further, while um, those who are uh, legally recognized as refugees or in the process or asylum seekers, those who are recognized as legitimate refugees have the right to seek asylum and they um, benefit from the uh, principle of non-refoulement, which is to say that they cannot be sent back to, um, to the country of origin or to the borders of the country where their life liberty um, would be you know, under threat or they would be endangered. But, and this is a giant but, when the Refugee Convention was set up, uh, while individuals have the right to seek asylum, states are not obligated to grant asylum. And this is a giant contradiction there. Uh, so you have the right to seek asylum and you have the right to be protected, but individual states are not, in fact, obligated to grant state, grant these individuals asylum. So that too, um, in addition to the complications of sometimes distinguishing between migrants, legitimate uh, refugees, and migrants, uh, you can sort of add that to the mix of the, <laughs> the complications. I, I see that it's complicated, but just to, you know, just to be clear on that point, so essentially states where a refugee arrives seeking asylum, they can't return them to their country of origin if they're at threat there but they don't have to, as it were, incorporate them into the national life of the, of the state that they're seeking to enter. Is that right? Just so. I mean, the, the individual states may, may view, and there may be your, your European or, or other, you know, there, there may be particular national laws or um, supranational laws that, uh, should we say, would advocate for granting asylum and, um, and even eventually citizenship, but the international refugee regime does not necessitate or does not uh, obligate states to grant asylum. It only obligates states not to subject those who are seeking asylum to undue risk. So the, the people could be, as it were, maintained in a sort of uh, state of limbo in a camp or something. But um, Indeed, indeed. And, and of course that does happen. Now one, one of the things that you've written about very interestingly is the way that you know, not only are people crossing borders of their own volition, but there also is a degree of kind of political manipulation involved. So states are using the flow of people as a kind of, you know, as a geopolitical tool or a kind of geopolitical strategy. Uh, do you want to talk a little bit about how we've seen that playing out in, in recent years and, you know, how that process works? So I've written about what I call coercive engineered migration, which is a uh, often unfortunately or tragically effective form of um, non-military coercion. And so if we think about traditional coercion as being the practice of inducing or preventing changes in political behavior through the threats, through threats, intimidation, or other form of pressure, most often military pressure, by extension, you know, what I write about is uh, the use of cross-border population movements that are either deliberately created or simply manipulated if they're already in, in train in order to induce 
some combination of political, military, and or economic concessions from a target state or states. So as you suggested in your question, you know, sometimes uh, through political manipulation, ongoing migration flows are used uh, to, uh, should we say, you know, coerce or to blackmail uh, potential recipient states or others uh, to give them things that they would otherwise be unable to acquire from the target state or states. Uh, but sometimes actors even generate outflows or threaten to generate outflows from scratch, whether using political or military or other means. So this is um, this can the sort of coercion uh, can be very active uh, or or more passive in the context of simply manipulating outflows that have been created by others. What would you um, hold up as you know as some kind of particularly telling instances of this kind of um, coercive uh, migration? So uh, former Libyan dictator uh, Muammar Gaddafi quite dramatically and at this point infamously threatened to turn Europe black, quote-unquote, on numerous occasions, if not granted uh, various political and uh, financial uh, compensation or, should we say, um, inducements from the European Union. And uh, he used this tool against his neighbors many decades before, but rather famously uh, began a series of uses against the European Union in 2004 when he was able to get the last of the um, sanctions, arms-related sanctions against Libya lifted in exchange for helping control unregulated flows across the Mediterranean and into Europe. Uh, he went back to the well in 2006, 2008, uh, quite famously in 2010 with the um, threatening to turn Europe black, uh, quote, aforementioned quote, um, and then tried again in February 2011 um, called EU ministers to Tripoli and essentially said, you know, please stop supporting the protesters. This is in the context of the Arab Spring. Um, you know, I, I encourage you strongly uh, to stop supporting the democracy democracy movement or else. Um, and that time, it was after, you know, he was successful, in, as I said, in 2004, 6, 8, and 10, he um, sort of pushed the Europeans too far and... Um, that was, that was the end of his serial run of blackmail. More recently, Turkish President uh, Erdogan um, used the same tool against the European Union and managed to extract an early deal and then a more substantial deal from an early deal in November 2015 and a more substantial deal in, November, in excuse me in March 2016. And to the tune of six billion plus dollars, uh, excuse me, euros uh, in aid and various other goodies, including I promise to revive the then moribund um, Turkish EU accession talks. Those, all of these moves seem to be stalled at the moment, but then Erdogan threatened again last November to, um, to perhaps upend the deal and let flows resume into Europe. I've given you a couple of European examples, but uh, unfortunately, this tool is 
not limited to recent uses in Europe, and we've seen somewhere between 75 and 85 attempted cases since the advent of the Refugee Convention, which is to say since 1951 alone. And in almost three quarters of the cases where this tool is actually you know, attempted, um, coercers get at least some of what they're after. Sometimes what they're after is pretty modest and um, um, simply entails financial payoffs. But sometimes, uh, as in the case of Jean, uh, then exiled Haitian President Jean-Bertrand Aristide, can involve uh, demands as significant as uh, help being reinstalled into power. Uh, and, that, and Aristide was quite successful in compelling the, the then sitting Clinton administration to see him reinstalled into power in Haiti in 1994. So three-quarters of cases, if the countries that engage in this uh, unsavory practice are getting at least some of what they're seeking, that's a pretty high success rate, I would have thought, compared to a lot of other kind of uh, you know, possible tools of coercive foreign policy. It's, a, it's an extremely high uh, success rate. Um, and indeed, the U.S., which is reportedly the world's most powerful as the world's most powerful military, uh, the U.S.'s own r historic rate of success in terms of course of diplomacy falls beneath or shortly shy of 40%. So this nearly three quarters is a very, um, very high success rate. The one thing I would say, and this is a big you know, qualification, is that it's very, very possible and, and indeed maybe even likely that this tool is only attempted when the coercer uh, is relatively sure that you know, he or she or should say they are likely to be successful. So uh, in the grand scheme of things, we could say, well, maybe it's actually not such an effective tool. It's just that when it is used, um, the coercer has a pretty good sense that it's going to work. Right, with Colonel Gaddafi in 2011, I guess there's one exception to that. Well, that would be an exception, but there are also all these cases of the dogs that don't bark. Uh, so we may only see, we may see, you know, it may be the case that there are all sorts of actors who are thinking about this, and then they say, nah, I'm not going to work. Uh, so we don't, we, we can't really say anything about the cases we don't see, and there may be a lot of those, it's hard to know. The only thing that we can say is that when uh, those attempts that are observable and have been corroborated, it, uh, coercers do seem to get at least um, at least some of what they're after quite quite often. And even if one imposes a more stringent uh, standard and essentially says, you know, did they get more or less all of what they uh, they sought? The number goes down, but still is um, well over 50%, about 57% of the cases, coercers get um, more or less all of what, they've, um, what they, they've sought. Those are impressive figures, yeah. And I suppose, I mean, you know, from a, from a European perspective, you can see the power of this because, you know, migration is one of those questions um, that really is a kind of, as you said before, it's an enormous political issue within European societies. So political leaders, you know, are looking at it as something which could really have a dramatic effect on the uh, political and public opinion of their population. That's uh, really uh, something that touches political leaders very directly. Absolutely, and uh, the, it, the issue is you know, there's a fundamental tension that has more or less always been there, but we see it more acutely now, and that um, there are, as you said, there are a number of 
norms and rules and laws put in place to protect those fleeing violence and persecution for very, very, very good reasons. Um, by the same token, there has there's always been um, some segment of society that is loathe or reluctant to adhere to those or to support adherence to those laws, rules, norms, and regulations. And the segment of society, at least in some European countries, that uh, has become chary of um, open-door policy has grown. And as I said, savvy political actors have been taking advantage of, of this. And the problem for, a fundamental problem for, for leaders is that one cannot both simultaneously accept a given group of refugees and reject them. Um, so it's, it, you know, you can't be King Solomon and, and uh, split the baby. Um, you know, here too, you've got a fundamental dilemma. And so, as you say, it, it could be a um, very powerful tool. So we're, we're coming towards the, the end of of our discussion and you know this is the point really where we turn to the kind of difficult question of you know is there a better way of handling these things and political leaders have been grappling you know with real difficulty with this question but I'm wondering with the luxury of being able to take a step back and not face the voters um, do you have a sense you know do you think that we need to rethink the kind of international regime for handling refugees? You know, is it time for some new agreements? Or do you think it's just a case of uh, leaders trying to persuade their populations to kind of ride out the storm? How much... (laughs) I don't think we have enough time to cover this question. Uh, (laughs) But I would say there's an even... I'm going to to try to sidestep the problem or the question by saying there's an even larger set of issues and that with climate change and with uh, shifting demographic patterns, there are those who care deeply about the protection of, of displaced people firmly believe that we should be expanding the definition of who is a refugee. Uh, so one of my uh, one of my colleagues, Alexander Betts, who's at Oxford and runs the Refugee Studies Center, has um, coined the term survival migration. Essentially, says these, these people, you know, some of them we might more traditionally think of them as economic migrants, but really they should, you know, they're, they too are worthy of, of protection. So many of the people who care deeply about refugees are calling not for a sort of rethinking in the context of should we be upholding our current obligations, but rather we should have you know, more, more expansive um, obligations, um, a, 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 sort of a bigger open our, our hearts and, and our arms um, more broadly. Unfortunately, sort of politically, we're not in a place where if we re, you know, sought to renegotiate what it means to be a refugee, uh, that we could, I, I think it's not even safe to imagine that the current definition would stand. So, I, to come back to your question, whatever might be wise in terms of rethinking, I'm not convinced that from a pragmatic political standpoint, this is the time to be renegotiating the regime because it's not quite clear to me how much of it would survive. Yeah, no, that I can see that. It's, as it were, the kind of the imperative of humanity and the imperative of politics may be pushing in different directions. Definitely. And if I can't tempt you to, you know, in five minutes redesign the, the international refugee and migration system, I wonder if I can at least push you to 
speculate a little bit about whether, I mean, the impression I'm getting is you see this as something where the kind of principled aspect of the international system is going to be more and more under strain. You see these trends getting worse and, you know, we may be in for an era where we're simply less generous um, and less accommodating to, to people arriving from overseas. Um, and is that going to, you know, as the numbers seem set to increase, do you think this is going to lead to countries doing more and more to kind of pull up the drawbridge or strengthen the barriers? I, I, I'm going to try to be optimistic here and say it is a bit too soon to tell. I think in the very short term, we're going to see exactly what you're, you've suggested. However, much depends on human agency. And for uh, you know, Angela Merkel did win a fourth term. Yes, Alternative for Germany is uh, does have seats in Parliament, and this is a disturbing development that cannot be underestimated. But... You know, Merkel's still in the driver's seat. President Macron has gone so far as to say that welcoming migrants is, you know, a quote, human duty, a question of dignity and loyalty to who we are and what we believe in. So there are powerful political actors who are not essentially throwing up their hands and saying, this is where the political winds are going and um, I'm going to sway with them. So we'll have to see how other European elections play out in the coming months and years. We'll see how much pushback there is. Sometimes things have to get quite perilous before potential resistance emerges and there's pushback. The liberal democracy has been under threat before and uh, you know, roared back, uh, fought against fascism, and um, we, we saw what you referred to as the liberal democratic order arriving. So all of this is um, to say it's too soon to know. I don't predict good things in the, in the very short term, and I could see uh, unfortunate developments continuing over the longer term, but it's also possible to turn the aircraft carrier and for our better angels um, to emerge and also for the system to right itself. I'm not going to assign a probability to either, <laughs> either outcome. I'm just going to say that, that both options and many options in between different kinds of evolution uh, morphine are also possible. Great. Well, I'm going to seize on that note of at least possible optimism to, to bring this discussion to a close. Traditionally in this series, though, we're asking people a couple of things, you know, at the end of the discussion. First, to, to complete in one sentence, or roughly, the sentence beginning, the liberal order is dot, dot, dot. The liberal order is uh, embattled and suffering under the weight of internal contradictions. Thank you very much. And then, you know, we're asking all the people we speak to for a couple of suggestions about interesting things to read. Um, obviously, one of them would be your book, Weapons of Mass Migration, and we'll put a, a link to that on our website next to this podcast. But do you have any other thoughts for things that you have found stimulating about the, the current state of the international system? Um, some, a few recommendations I would make are um, George Sorensen's A Liberal World Order in Crisis. And um, I could give you what comes after the colon, but I think you could find it from there. Uh, Mark Bly's uh, Austerity, The History of a Dangerous Idea. Uh, 
very interesting and uh, compelling read. Uh, for someone, if people are interested in more sort of longer-term theoretical thinking, uh, Duncan Bell has produced a really great collection of essays uh, called Reordering the World. Uh, and Duncan actually thinks about the origins or the history of the liberal world order going back uh, long before the post-World War II period. Uh, it's a great book. Fantastic. Well, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Um, but for now, goodbye. And the um, producer of our podcast is Pauline Gomez.